Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision? We will always have enough cash yeah. around. Strictly business. Hello, finance folks, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and I talk to finance thought leaders about the trends and techniques used to build better businesses. In this episode, I spoke with Anes Lou Lindbergh, partner and COO at the Business Partnering Institute and advisory board member at Born Capital. Anes worked his way through the ranks at AP Moller Mask going from financial controller to senior finance business partner in around 10 years. He now draws on his experience in building the finance function as a thought leader and advisor and on his own LinkedIn feed with nearly 10 million views in 2021. We discussed the finance function of the future, the mindset issue holding many CFOs back, and why finance teams have an unfair advantage over other business units. Today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.eu and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. Anas Lulinberg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Patrick. Happy to be here. We're really happy to have you. Um, as has become customary, uh, the best place to start is maybe just to have you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your background and, and what you do now. Yes, thanks, uh, thanks, Patrick. So my name is Anas Liu Lindberg. I'm a partner at a company called Business Partner Institute. And we help finance functions all over the world elevate their influence in their companies through business partnering. I also have a blog on LinkedIn with more than 150,000 subscribers. And I uh, basically just put out content on a daily basis to try and help finance and accounting professionals all over the world succeed in their careers. So that's a bit about uh, me. We're going to dive into that content because um, it's made my life really easy preparing for the podcast, just being able to look through what you've already written about. Could you just tell us a little more about business partnering? So business partnering is really a concept where, you know, finance, but also other functions, they have to figure out how do we bring the insights in play from our analysis, from the numbers, if you're talking about finance, with business leaders in sales and marketing and operations to help them make better decisions. So we really just say insights times influence equal to impact. So insights is all the, the numbers and the you know new perspectives we have to make these better decisions. Your influence is your ability to you know, build relationships, speak in a language that the business understand, and communicate your insights so you get a yes from these busy executives. And if you have insights and you have influence, you have impact, which is value creation, you know, shareholder value creation in most companies, but you know, whatever value creation definition that you have, that you get through better decision making and stronger execution. So that's business partnering in a nutshell. Mm. And, and what does your day job look like? So my day job is kind of uh, kind of diverse, I would say, but you know most most often I would have engagement with uh, clients that could be training programs, it could be consulting uh, jobs to help them sort of set their organization or create a framework for business partnering so people understand what does this mean and what do I need to do differently. And of course, I create a lot of uh, content and engage with lots of uh, people because I also yeah, let's say do uh, do marketing 
on, um, on, on what we do, but it's really just about telling what business partnering is, telling where's finance heading in the future, and then uh, you know, helping people like that. And, and that's what motivates you to create so much content specifically on LinkedIn. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much purpose-driven to just help anyone out there be successful. And of course, you know, I can't help everyone personally. I mean, I have more than 67,000 followers right now. And of course, lots of people are sending me messages and I'm stuck in my career. Can you help me find a job? And what should I do about this, that, and the other? And of course, you know, it's grown to a point where I just can't cater individually to it. So I really just try to help people through the content. And then of course, if they comment or engage with the content, I will respond in kind. But, but that's, that's really why it's the best way for me to help everyone out there that needs helping. Have you always been a finance person? I've always worked in finance except for a short stint in HR when I was a student. And it's a, you know, it's a funny story, right? Because I was, I was in finance, at least to begin with, as a student. And then I really liked that about working with people and helping the companies find the right people. So I, I moved into to HR still as a student because I thought, you know, working strategically with HR, that, that sounded pretty cool to me. But working in that HR function, it was sort of like an engineering company with engineers and whatnot. And those engineers, they, they, they told me, not directly because I was in HR, but they just said, you know, ah, these HR people kind of just stay out of my life. I can find my own people. They just need to make sure it's posted and then send me everyone that, that applies. And I was like, hmm, that's not nice to have a job that people are talking about you or your role like that. So I went back into finance thinking, I'm not going to spend the first 10 years of my career trying to convince people all the good that HR can do. But of course, what do I find in finance? It's exactly the same, right? Mm. You know, business people think about finance in the same way. You know, just stay out of my business. Just send me the report with the numbers and I'll figure it out. And, you know, you can't keep running forever. So I sort of took a stand and say, okay, I... Let me try finance, see how it goes, because I'm good with numbers and I like, you know, working with business. Uh, so I'll try it out. And uh, yeah, then I ended up spending the first 10 years of my career trying to convince people all the good that finance can do. And uh, and here we are, because finance can do a lot of good. Well, let's get into that. That was a, a perfect segue. I wanted to, to sort of touch on, the, as I said, the content that you've put out recently. And one of the, the really interesting things that you published on LinkedIn was your New Year speech, where you sort of detailed a lot of trends, uh, things that we saw in the last year, but but more importantly, trends for 2022. Um, one, obviously, one of the first things that caught my eye is this this term that you use a lot, both in that piece of content and in other content, the finance function of the future, which is sort of I, I you tell me if I'm wrong, but that that building the finance function of the future is is one of your key aims. Yeah. What is the finance function of the future? So I think the term I really use now is like finance function 4.0, mm. of course, building on the industry 4.0, but really just to say that, you know, there's a lot of transactions and a lot of things that we need to do in finance for compliance and controlling purposes. Those are not necessarily the things that are adding value to a company. So we need to first digitalize, if not already, and then automate uh, all these transactional processes to free up time for generating insights that we can influence business leaders with to make better decisions. Because that's that's what we should be doing. But if you go back, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, it's not really what we have been doing. So that's the future where we need to create that say, you know, if finance can unlock this, there's an immense value potential just lying there for the taking. 
I call it typically the trillion dollar opportunity. Mm. You know, I think if every finance and accounting person was a good business partner, we could increase the global EBIT or EBITDA, whatever measure you want to use, with one to two percentage points. That's probably a trillion dollars, I would say. That's why we call it the trillion dollar opportunity. Um, and that's that's the future to me, that it's much more human to human interaction and the numbers are generated automatically. So it's about using the number for making better decisions. I think I think most of the CFOs that we speak to at least recognize that for sure, that 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 need to automate and move away from a lot of the smaller transactions. What do you think's preventing that today? So I think, you know, with with the whole pandemic and everything that we've seen in the past couple of years, I think actually it's starting to move, at least on the transactional side. So there was a, a book or ebook put out by Accenture earlier or back into 2021, where it said from 2018 to 2021, the rate of automation of transactional tasks in finance had gone from 34% to 60%. Mm. That's a massive change in such a short period. Because you know, you and I we both know we've been talking about automation for you know 20 years, probably even longer, but not a lot has happened. And now suddenly. Maybe because of the pandemic, probably, maybe because of other things, it, it just happened. And of course, we can go further than 60%, but this is massive. So things are actually starting to move, I would say. Uh, but of course, you know, it's not just about automating the transactional processes. It's also about, you know, planning and analytics and, you know, uh, big data and data science and, you know, predicting the future and all this stuff, which is what we are getting into now, I think. What's stopping us? Um, you know, there's, there's nothing really that should be stopping us because all the tools, all the methods are really available. So it's much more about how do we apply it in our companies. But I think, you know, if we go five, 10 years back, there's the more traditional finance people, those that maybe were brought up in either auditing or accounting, where it's much more about, you know, not taking risk and making sure everything is compliant. And then, you know, you go into a much more uncertain space where you can't say, well, this should be 99% correct before we can send it through. Now you're more like, okay, if I can be 80% correct, it's actually pretty good. And that is sort of like an internal change that needs to happen. And that's, that's hard. You know, I can tell you, Patrick, this is what needs to happen. You can say, yes, Andrews, that makes a lot of sense. And inside you're feeling like, oh, but uh, I'm not really comfortable mm. going from 99% to 80%. I think that's that's really what's what's happening, that we are trying to get comfortable with this new uncertain reality. Um, so nothing is stopping us. We just need to get comfortable with it. Do you think there'll be a moment where we'll be able to look and sort of say, all right, we've reached 4.0. It's it's widespread. Or is it is it always just a matter of transitioning to the next thing? I think, you know, probably some consultants will come up with a new term mm. before we even reach there, right? That's that's how we keep things moving in society. But I think, you know, it's it's a good target to have right now and say, you know, and you know, now we always make, you know, strategies and visions for, for finance. And sometimes you are a few years in, sometimes you're starting from scratch. So I think if you're starting from scratch today, getting to finance function 4.0 is, is where you need to be. But in two, three years, it might be that, you know, maybe we call it something else, but the target keeps moving because it's not an absolute game, right? It's a relative game against your competitors. Just like in business, it's the same in finance. You know, is your finance function a competitive advantage or is it dragging you down? 
That's what business leaders and CEOs are asking themselves. Is finance helping me or is it holding me back? So it's it's a constant moving target and you know, finance leaders out there, they need to be sure that they're improving, relatively speaking, towards their competitors. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders, like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us. You had a LinkedIn poll with, with thousands of votes, and, and I think this is sort of what you were touching on just before. Um, in the poll, you sort of asked what was holding finance teams back, and the, the, the winning vote, the leading result was mindset rather than processes, tools, or people. Is that sort of what, that's what you were talking about just before. It's this idea of switching the mindset that, um, that a lot of finance leaders are still struggling with. Absolutely. It was very interesting when I made that poll. I was like, so there's the mindset, there's systems, there's processes, and then also put people in terms of, you know, training and do we actually have the skills to do it? Because, you know, skills is different from the mindset. And I was thinking to myself, "Mm, it's probably going to be like a, you know, systems or processes because that's something external from ourselves. Mm. So it's easier to say, well, just give me the right system and everything will be good. But, you know, out of these, I think it was like close to 1500 votes. 62% 62% said the mindset, and then there was an even split between the rest three. So it was, it was mind-blowing to me to say, okay, you know, we're actually telling in public that the problem starts with us. And I think that's a realization we have today that we didn't have five years ago. And so to me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's of course not so good because it means we have to change a lot with ourselves, but it's great that the awareness is now there. People are open to what's changing. And it's also what we see at Business Partner Institute, that there's so many finance functions coming to us and say, help us change, you know, help our people understand what is the change that needs to happen and then train them to get the skills to get there. And that awareness, that openness, it wasn't there five years ago. So I think it's it's great, but of course also means we have a lot of work to do. I wonder if it's the same um, in my relatively short career, I have uh, worked with a lot of startups and, and you always, the, the, you have the cliche of, you know, move fast and break things or be prepared to take risks. Risk taking is an important sort of part of growth. Um, at least that's the way it's seen. And yet when you actually apply that in the real world, a lot of the time you find people are afraid to make mistakes still or afraid mm-hmm. to, um, yeah, to make mistakes. I wonder if that's even more the case for, for finance teams, particularly people coming from, I don't know, more like risk and compliance backgrounds where really your job is to prevent mistakes, you know, or prevent major errors. Is that part of what's, um, where the holdup is around mindset? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if there's anyone in the world that's more risk averse than accounting people and, and some finance people at least, uh, but we are by nature, kind of risk averse. Maybe that's why we went into this field in the first place, because we could actually use our risk averse skills for something good. Uh, but but now the game is changing, right? You know, the, the, the systems is taking care of most of it, and we just need to do exception handling. So that risk averse kind of nature is not so useful anymore. 
So, you know, we've set up a lot of, uh, you know, changes more specifically to make, to create that mindset change. And one of them is to say, stop thinking about risk as something bad, but think of risk as something neutral and figure out what are the opportunities and what are the real risks that we definitely need to mitigate. Risk is not bad. Risk is neutral. Without risk, there's no reward. I mean, we learned that in business school, mm. right? Without risk, there's no business. There's no free lunch, as they say, right? We have heard this quote so many times, but it is true. So if all finance is doing, going to work, is saying we need to eliminate all risk involved in this decision, well, there's no point. We're not going to create any value. So we have to shift this mindset from the no risk taking to taking the right risks, mm. right? That's what we're there for, helping people take the right risks. And we can do that. We are actually ideally suited to do this. And it's a question of opportunity cost as well. I, I, I presume if you're not taking risks, you're leaving potential growth on the table. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, take more risks. And yes, you will fail from time to time, but you learn from it, right? I always say to, to, to people I work with that, you know, I love that you fail. Just don't fail me twice on the same thing because then it shows that we are not learning. And I think learning, if you look at, you know, the World Economic Forum about critical skills for the future, going towards 2030, learning is the top one, mm. right? Because things change so fast that if we don't have that learning mindset or, you know, in popular terms, the growth mindset, we get stuck. And there's nothing worse than being stuck because then you're not moving anywhere, right? Mm. Is that... Um how, how do finance leaders, aside from what you've already told us, how else can finance leaders work on that mindset and be prepared to, to take more risks or opportunities is maybe the, the more neutral way of uh, phrasing it? Yeah, exactly. So there's sort of four pillars that needs to be in place, right? And, and that, of course, goes for the leaders themselves, but it also goes for their, for their team members, right? So the first thing is people need to understand what is changing and why is it changing and maybe most importantly, it has to make sense to them, right? If the change doesn't make sense, no change will happen. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar is, am I actually seeing people around me already working in new ways, already taking a bit more risk? Do we have role models in the company that I can point my team members towards and say, you know, these are three people that are already doing it and look at the results that they have created, try to learn from them and, and talk to them and, and see what you can do better. So that's number two. Number three is, you know, the systems and the processes and the organizational structure needs to support the new ways of working. Uh, so if you have automated a lot in your accounting team, for instance, but you don't change the tasks that your accounting team needs to work with, then it sort of defeats the purpose, right? So you need to feel supported by everything going on in the organization that this change needs to happen. And then the last bit is, that you actually get opportunity to work with these new new things, right? So if you are supposed to be a business partner, do you actually have someone in the business, a sales leader, for instance, that you are a business partner to? Or is it just like another buzzword that people have brought up because they have heard from consultants that they need to do this? You know, then it doesn't work. And then lastly, you know, still part of that, that fourth pillar is you need training to work in these new ways. And I think, you know, that's that's probably the worst thing that you can do is that you tell people, we need to do something different. It all makes sense. Here's what you need to do. Go do it. It doesn't work like that, right? You have to have, you know, tools, templates, new ways of working, training, you know, how to use it to get there. And I think that finance leaders are realizing that as well. We actually need to train our people, not just as a benefit, but as a real development 
point in what we do. Do you see a lot of finance teams sticking with what they're doing just out of inertia? Rather, so we've talked about risk, and 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 that's one thing. But but what about just the idea that people know the way that they do things, they're comfortable with the way that they do things, and eh, change is difficult. And it would just wouldn't it just be easier to stick with our processes that we have today? Absolutely, and many finance teams are doing that. I think what's different today, and again accelerated by the pandemic, is that the business leaders they won't allow it. Mm. They expect more from finance. So I think we're seeing more often now than we did 10 years ago that CFOs and probably also other senior finance leaders, they're getting the boot. They're getting kicked out if they're not delivering more than just control and compliance. So there's an expectation from the ones, let's say, paying the salaries that more value comes out from the finance function. So yes, you can continue to work in your ways, but you're going to have to find somewhere else to do it. And then you can keep running back for the rest of your career. I wouldn't find that very satisfying, but of course, you know, I can't decide for everyone. It's better to rip off the bandit and start the change. You know, yes, it's uncomfortable in the beginning. All growth is like that, but then it gets better. Well, let's dive into that then. What, what does the rest of the company need from the CFO and from the finance function? They need help to make better decisions, right? Of course, they can always make gut-based decisions, but they know if we make data-based decisions, it's going to be better. Of course not. Every decision is by default going to get better just because it's supported by data, but in general, it will get better. So they're looking for data-based insights to begin with. They're also looking for a discussion partner, right? It's one thing that a, you know, a CEO or a CCO or whatever they all call is sitting there and thinking, this this sounds right. I've discussed a bit with my team. We all have the same opinion that this makes sense. What do you think, finance? Well, you know, we've considered different parts of this decisions and, you know, here are some of the benefits that we see and here are some of the, the risks that we see. So, you know, what do you think about that? That's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone to help qualify and, of course, also quantify, is this the best decision that we can make under these circumstances? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, they can just use their experience and their gut and, and do it and, Sometimes they will be even more right than if finance was, was helping. But in general, on average, that's what they're looking for. Is that because finance has actually owns the data? Finance has the numbers because finance has the skills maybe that, that other teams don't have? Is it a combination of both of those? Is it something else? Yeah, it, it's a combination of a few things. We even call it the unfair advantage of finance, mm -hmm. right? So something that finance has that the rest of the business and anyone else in the business, they, they don't have it. And the first is, you know, we, we understand the business, maybe not as well as the business leader, but we understand the business. We have access to financial data. Yes, we own that. But we also typically have access to non-financial data, even though we might not own it. Probably think it's a good idea if we gather data ownership in some central place, but we have access to it. Then, you know, we also have analytical skills. So we can actually do something with this data and figure out what are the trends and patterns and whatnot in this data that, that we need to, to make sense of. Fourth, we have a cross value chain perspective, right? So we can look across the value chain. If you're in sales, you don't. You focus on sales and you should because that's where your expertise is, mm -hmm. right? So we can look across. And the last bit is that by design, finance is typically at the tables when decisions are made. So we can choose to use that seed to actually proactively lean in to the discussion or we can 
lean out and just sit and take the notes and send out, you know, here's the summary. And uh, many finance people have taken too much of a lean back approach and instead they should really lean in and facilitate, if not even lead the discussion. You know, that's what business leaders are looking for. You know, they would love for finance leaders to come in and facilitate uh, business discussions around what should we do about this specific challenge that we are facing. But too often, we are not. We just, you know, maybe we are there, but we're not really using that opportunity to something. But if you put all these things together, we have an unfair advantage in finance that no one else in the company has. Yes, they have probably other advantages, but not this one. And we need to use this unfair advantage to drive better decisions. And you've talked about the finance function becoming a profit driver, which I suppose is, is sort of the opposite in my head anyway of being a, you know, risk and compliance, uh, you know, a risk limiter and then a profit driver. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't mean that finance is going to be making the money, mm. right? It's, it's not, that's not what it's about, but it's driving that mindset of where do we create value? How can we create more value and how can we do it? together. So instead of, you know, looking at the historical numbers, it's about looking towards the future. It's about, you know, taking the right risks rather than not taking risks. It's about sharing insights, new perspectives. And I think maybe the most key shift we need to make is stop trying to succeed on our own and enabling others to succeed. You know, the business is not there because of finance and accounting people. Finance and accounting people is there because there is a business. And yes, there is some compliance and some controlling stuff that we need to get done. We shouldn't forget that, but we're there to help them succeed, right? So, you know, I would tell almost any finance team out there and say, you cannot be successful unless the business is successful. They say you have a stake in that, you have good customer satisfaction, and you can actually articulate what is it that you did that helped them be successful. Because if it's just sending the report and say, now you have the numbers, that's not good enough. You know, articulate what was your role in the business being successful. If you can do that, you are doing business partnering. You are helping the business be successful. Then you can claim finance and accounting people, we are successful. What are you writing about this quarter? So I have uh, quite a few things on, uh, on, on my slate. So right now we're writing about, you know, frontier technologies and how they can be used in finance, you know, blockchain and AI and Internet of Things and all these things. How does that translate into finance? We'll also write something about coding because I put out a poll and say, you know, should finance and accounting people learn how to code? And two thirds said yes. I'm a bit on the fence on that because I don't think that makes sense that we all learn how to code. We should be able to use the tools and then maybe we should have a few specialists that want to uh, learn how to code. I also asked, you know, what kind of coding languages should we then learn? 50% said R or Python. So it's putting and pushing in a data science direction. Putting those two numbers together, it basically says one third of finance and accounting professionals should become data scientists. And that's that's madness. Yes, maybe five or 10% should, but that's madness. But it's such a, you know, shiny object there for people to see, oh, this sounds cool. I need to get in on the action. So I have to write about does that make sense or not? And, and what probably why not? Because as I said, I'm a bit on the fences on that. We're also going to be writing about planning. So, you know, planning is uh, always the topic of finance people, you know, budgets and rolling forecasts, and basically going to write that under the notion that planning is dead because, you know, things change so fast. So what are we even planning for? Uh, I haven't quite figured out the, the complete storyline yet, 
but uh, but that's definitely something we're going to be putting out. We're also going to dig further into the ESG topic for finance people. Uh, we wrote a bit about that last year, but we're going to dig further into that because it, the whole ESG thing is just such a big thing for companies in general right now that CFOs, they need to get on top of this right now, not in six months, not in 12 months, no, right now. So those were just a few of the a few of the topics that we are going to be putting out. Mm. ESG jumped out to me right away. I was thinking about this last week in relation to a, another um, podcast interview. How do you think, maybe you haven't fully formulated um, your thesis on this yet, but how, how can CFOs help to lead ESG for their companies? So I think the key point is that businesses should revamp their business model to a point where ESG is not a cost, but actually, you know, going back to the profit driver notion that we, we do ESG because it makes sense for our business, right? Because if you can get your business model to that point, then you will find everyone working towards that common goal. If you only see ESG as a cost and compliance thing, okay, we need to tick all these boxes, we're never going to get anywhere on this agenda. And there's no one better positioned in a company than the CFO to figure out how do we drive value creation through ESG. And I think, you know, my former company, Maersk, they have done this so well that, you know, they're not just looking at, okay, how can we save on fuel, for instance? They're actually saying, well, we save on fuel, one, of course, because it's good for the environment, but also because it's good for business. And I think they keep driving so many different uh, uh, new initiatives on this agenda here that uh, it's, it's, it's just a, such a great transformation that, that, that Maersk has done and showcasing that you can actually do good business while moving the ESG, ESG agenda in the right direction at the same time. And I think if more companies can do that, Sounds a bit, uh, you know, silly, but then the world would be a better place. Mm. Well, it's a, it's a nice side effect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We all exactly. have a nicer world to live in. Um, okay, yeah. uh, you mentioned sort of the future of technology. You mentioned blockchain, etc. Where do you think finance automation is is heading in the next two, three, four years? Well, so you know, I also ask how far can we push this rate of automation, and I think. It's probably landing somewhere around 80 to 85% if companies really do it well. But of course, you know, we also get to a point where getting that last few percentage points is going to be very expensive, at least with the technology available today. So I'm expecting in the next two to three years that the 60% goes towards 70%. And, you know, we'll have to make conscious choices along the way of how much do we want to push this versus, you know, make investments elsewhere. Um, because, you know, just automating for the sake of automating is not always the right decision. We also have other parts of finance that needs investments and probably the business needs investing in other bits as well. Mm. But as you sort of suggested much earlier on in our conversation, most of the technology we, we have, it's there. So we're, we're the, the change in the next few years is more about adoption. It's about people actually using what exists. I'm sure that technology will improve. Even at Spendesk, where I work, we will, of course, improve in the next two or three years. But the, the basics are there, the foundations are there. Yeah, and that's also why I think we could actually see that shift from 34% to 60% in such a few years, mm. because the tools were already there. You know, it's not like you needed NASA to invent something, right? It's already there. So it's just about using it in the right way. And I've sort of coined this term called being a techno. So someone that knows what technology is available and how to apply it in your company. You might not know exactly how to implement it, and you know, you're not an expert on how to run it right now, but that you can find people that can help you with that. But if you're a tech no, you will always push this agenda and you will push your, your, your automation ratios and whatever else 
upwards towards where it needs to be. That's no K-N-O-W. Yes. Right. So technology knowledgeable, if you can call it like that. <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up in a moment. Um, but to end every interview, we like to ask the same handful of questions. Uh, as I say every time, we call them quick fire questions. You can take as long as you like to answer them. Um, I'll just ask them quickly. <laughs> so first, well, what's one finance tool you couldn't live without? And please don't say Excel. <laughs> well, so I don't do much finance work these uh, these days. But if I had to pick one. It would have to be my expense or automation app, and I'm not uh, not not saying that to to please anyone, but it's really just you know, that's one where I've experienced myself going from you know such amount of paper and you know error prone processes to just having everything at your fingertip and say okay expense this picture that and then I don't have to think about it. Mm. I, I promise we didn't discuss this just for the listener. We didn't discuss this beforehand, but uh, obviously at Swindesk that's exactly. Our position as well, if you're doing expenses on paper, you're simply wasting time. Uh, next question. If there was one part of your day-to-day -day you could outsource completely and forget about, what would it be? So again, I think it's, it's a lot of that manual work that we sometimes do. And I think the most manual work we do is probably slide production. Mm. Uh, so of course, you know, we do training programs and do consulting gigs. And, and right now, you know, we're, we're still a small company, although growing. So we have to do a lot of the slides ourselves. And I think that would probably be the biggest thing I could automate or outsource or something like that right now to, to help me in my daily work. That would resonate. I, I doubt they're listening, but our, my colleagues in, in the sales world, that will resonate just deeply with them. Because even if they're essentially giving the same pitch, but adjusted each time or, or whatever, even just updating the first couple of slides of the slide deck really adds up. Exactly, exactly. No, it's a big opportunity. And we, we are working on figuring that out. So maybe we'll come uh, not, uh, not in a too distant future. Cool. What's the best advice you've ever received? So I'm not a big, uh, you know, advice or quote person per, per se, but I guess given I'm, you know, very purpose-driven myself, I guess it would have to be start with the why. Mm. I mean, uh, if we understand why we do what we do, our life will be so much more meaningful. Uh, then it's just about finding a platform where you can live out that why, that purpose. And that's, you know, what I found at Business Partner Institute, which I was part of founding myself. So now, I, you know, daily I only do things I, I like to do, and it's just you know, fueling my purpose all the way. So it's a perfect situation. Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. At, at Spendesk, this is a brief aside, but our, our meeting rooms are all named after books. And I'm currently sitting in Start With The Why. That's the name of the room I'm sitting in. There you, there go. you go. Again, <laughs> we didn't plan that. And final question, which other finance leaders do you talk to or learn from regularly? So, you know, I have a huge network on LinkedIn. 
um, where you know I'm, I'm not going to point out any any single leader per se, but I really learned so much from my network, right? So I I would post questions or topics for discussion, and sometimes it's a poll. For instance, we learned about the mindset, right? I would thought be something completely different, or I would just post a you know a single a normal post, and people will comment. So that's really it's the sum of all those engagement and learnings that shapes my thinking about things, right? So for instance, just going back on that mindset poll, if that one had you know landed 25, 25, 25, 25 on those four options, I wouldn't have learned anything really, right? But now it says 62% of mindset. And that was so defining for a lot of the content that I put out last year that that's how the poll turned out. So really, you know, to anyone out there listening who's, uh, who's following me or engaging with my content, it's all because of you. I think that will resonate really strongly with uh, the members of the CFO Connect community for whom we create this podcast. That's obviously, we said the, the community exists for the same reason, so that people can learn from each other. If you are a member of that community or if you do enjoy that content, this podcast, um, all the work that we do, I highly, highly recommend that you follow Anas on, um, on LinkedIn because the 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 sort of the topics and the themes are familiar to me, but often the conversations are quite different. Exactly as you said, mindset being a just such a big blinking um, red light of something that needs to be worked on was not something that we were talking about previously. So I highly, highly recommend everybody checks out um, Anis's LinkedIn profile. Well, and it's, it's you know, I need to be thanking you, Anis Lou Lindbergh. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Aaron Patrick. It was uh, a lot of fun. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Join us for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for CFOs. Join the community and exchange ideas with CFOs from the most exciting companies in the world. Just visit cfoconnect.eu.